How do you find an animal you haven't seen in a decade? The last evidence of the spectacle-haired wallaby was seen outside Broome in 2004. All hope was lost that the small wallaby would ever be found in the West Kimberley again. That was before the Yaru country managers were on the case. Led by Pius Gregory, the country managers were joined by other local ranger groups as they set their sights on finding the one thing that could reveal if the wallaby still lived. Scat. I'm Carlo Ritchie, and this is Scat Chat with WWF. Join me and WWF as we get to the bottom of what fascinating things scat or poo can teach us about the animals that mate, the homes they live in, and the problems they face. We'll also chat about what you can do at home to help your favourite animals thrive in the wild. Today, I'm talking to Pius Gregory and Dr Leanne Woolley so that they can chat to me about how scat helped rediscover a wallaby in the wilds of Western Australia where it was thought to have been lost forever. Pius and Leanne, thank you so much for joining me on Scat Chat. I'm very excited to talk poo with you both. Hey, Carlo. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be talking about poo a lot. It's going to be a good time. I thought the best place to start, though, before we get into the muck, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourselves. I'm Pius Gregory. I used to work with the Yarrow country managers here in Broome and Yarrow, which is, by the way, the uh, traditional owners of this Broome area. So I'd like to acknowledge our traditional owners old and young and up and coming. And you're joined by... My name is Leanne Woolley and uh, a species conservation manager for WWF, also based in on Yarrow country. So, um, And we work quite a bit with Yarrow country managers and or a lot of groups across the Kimberley. That's awesome. Unpack that for me. If I open the tin of a species conservation manager, what do I find inside? Well, I- I don't know, generally, I don't think we're all <laughs> kind of cookie cutter type. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I have a PhD in conservation biology and um, my education is African. I'm from South Africa originally and um, I came over to Australia probably eight years ago now. And um, yeah, luckily found my way to the savannas, which the savannas of Africa are so similar. And in fact, the Kimberley region was named after a region in South Africa. So yeah, the Boabs and the Baobabs and all the similarities are really fantastic. And But then being able to learn on country from traditional owners is such a privilege and um, being able to sit next to someone like Pius to, to talk about poo is <laughs> it's always you know <laughs> a little part of our work and and yeah the consequences are much broader of course thanks for having us it really is my pleasure I'm, I'm very glad you guys are both here and, and Pius you're a, a cultural environmental project officer is that right yeah that's that's my title here with WWF yeah so what does that role involve well Go out there and help with the works, as well as input with any of the stuff that I know, you know, culturally and stuff like that. And if I know if I know anything about the animal that we're targeting. So before we get to the fun part in the spectacle hair wallaby poo, tell me a little bit about the spectacle hair wallaby. I don't know. They're not very big. Off of this table here, maybe that much, and that's all. Two feet or so. No, 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 even. Not like, even that. Yeah. 30 centimeters. Yeah. yeah. Very small. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, that's why I call spectacle air wallaby because around the eyes, got a little red thing. I look like it got glasses spectacles. on. 
Yeah. Yeah, right. Little orange spectacles. Very cute. They're reading glasses. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They've got quite shaggy fur and it's like um, that's how you can kind of tell if they're going past on a camera and you can't see the whole animal or you can't see its little face. Then you can see this fur is quite shaggy and it's uh, like a brownie color and they've got like a little white strap that's faded on, on their rear legs. Yep. So, yeah, we can tell them by that. What is the Yaru name for the spectacle hair wallaby? Magaban. Magaban? Magaban? Yeah. Magaban? yeah. What is the significance of that name? Well, that animal name, but it also has a um, skin name, which is from around here. Yarrow area. Skin name is Burungu, and the other one, which is related to it, cousin of it, which is the northern nail tail, is a Banaga. And can you explain the concept of a skin name for me? Well, they, they get, they, well, I found this in some of the um, old literature here from Yarrow country. So there's some animals got skin names, as well as some people got animal names. That's what they rise or whatever. They're not allowed to eat that animal. And so what does the scat look like? I mean, what makes it unique? Oh, it's, it's a lot different. You can find the agile wallaby scat or euro and stuff like that. It's, it's a lot different to that spectacular wallaby, as well as the uh, black-footed wallaby. They've all got different type of scats. And if you're in a place where you can't find tracks, well, you go to the next, next stop, which is scats maybe. So how long does this scat stay around? Can it be there for months or weeks or years even? Oh, yeah, yeah. All depends how how, much, how bad the conditions were, whether it got trampled or anything like that. Right. Yeah. So once you find this scat, can you tell how old it is roughly once you find it? Well, the best thing we do when, with this type of work we're doing is to go out there and find a fairly fresh one. So then you put a camera there, so you got more chance of finding it on the camera then putting it where um, you found old scats. Paint me a picture of what was it like to set out to find a species that no one had seen in decades? Well, there was an old explorer came through in the 1800s, I think it was, something like that, and he noticed that there was a lot of spectacular wallabies and those little uh, betongs. And, uh, well, we haven't seen them too, see? I, I'm a Yarrow person too myself. And I didn't see this animal out there. In 2014, that's when WWF came. They had a roadkill that was just out of Broomtown here. And they came with a uh, pamphlet with the animal name, what it looks like, scats and tracks. Well, in this country, you can't find the tracks. You've got too much leaf litter and the ground's too hard. Can't right. So you go for the next best thing. Well, they got to have a toilet somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was working at the time with the country managers, and they came along, and all they had was the paper to say, this is what the animal looked like, scats, tracks. So we went out there like that. We walked along. I had to train myself up. That was the very first time that I seen the scat, and then I had to train the brain for that one. So I was walking along, finding a lot of agiles and other scats, Comparing it to the piece of paper I had in my hand, I found one. Yep, this is the one. Walked along further because they wanted to put the camera there. I'm like, no, maybe we should move to where um, find a fresh one. Then we did, and uh, we found fresh scats. So we put that there near where we found it. And what did we get? We had the male and female 
on the camera with the little foot sticking out of the pouch from the mother. This is, you know, was a huge discovery in that you trace these scats, you put down a camera, and then tell me about what it was like the first time you saw a spectacle hair wallaby appear in front of those cameras. Oh, well, that, that's what, uh, you know, lifted me up. That's why I made it more or less my own, because I know for, for a fact we're not going to find tracks out here. And in certain other places where they have soft ground, you might be able to find tracks. And it must have been a fairly special thing, right? Because these spectacle-haired wallabies, no one had seen them for years. As you said, you know, you'd grown up on Yarrow country and you hadn't seen them. There was these records of them in the 1800s, but as far as you were concerned, they weren't around. What was it like to find a species that no one had seen for, you know, decades? Well, to be part of that, you know, I felt good, like making a rediscovery. Yeah, of course. Very little still known about them, so I was, I was very happy about that, yeah. And did that then affect, like, the knowledge about these wallabies? I mean, did you have to go to elders or, you know, older members of the Yarra community or neighbouring communities to find out more about these species if they hadn't been seen in such a long time? Yeah, I went, I asked some people further south of here, and they've got same type of um, habitat areas, grasses and stuff. They say that there was a whole lot of them around back when they were young. It is quite an incredible thing, like when you think about, oh, you know, if you can just see something as just poo or you can start to like examine it and go, oh, wait, this poo is slightly different from this poo. And then you start to work out different species and um, you know, different environments. It's pretty incredible. A lot of the books now, they've got animal track names and scats. So a lot of people can pick it out and get a copy of it and walk out in the bushes like I did, compare the scats till you get the right one. I seen another photo of a scat that they say belongs to a spectacular wallaby, but it might be the diet different because it's a little bit different shaped. And you, so you get excited about it when you're out there, like hunting around for for scat. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm same as when I've done our wallaby work. You get you get like bit down, you're not finding no signs, but then when you find one there, especially if it's fresh, or spirits lift. Then you want to find more. Yeah, yeah. And now you're talking about the scats. You're talking about scats. Well, I do that too for, I used to do that when I was working for Yaru. We go and get the scats for the bilby as well. Yeah, right. So they can get the uh, DNA to tell how many is in the area. Can I go back a second, Pius, to this idea of training yourself to identify the poo? What does that involve, you know, training in your eye? Well, if they were a sighting saying there, yep. It was his scene here. And if you come with the um, pamphlet, what the scouts look like, what they look like, same as how WWF first came here to Brook, then walk along and slowly get your eye in, like as they say. You can learn that easily. So you're just looking at lots of different scats, lots of different poos, and going like, oh, that's a little bit too pointy, and that's a little bit too round, and that's a little too big, and that's a little too small, and oh, and that, that one's just right. That's the scat I want. Yep, that's that's how I that's how I do it. Yep. Yeah, right. And how about you, Leanne? Do you get excited now by the scats? Like, have you caught some of Pius's excitement? You know. Yeah, when we're in the field, we're always looking for you know the habitat that has to be the right habitat, and of course, Pius's eye is perfectly trained on scats and tracks if possible and then the habitat and if there's the, the little shelters that the spectacled hair wallabies make then we know that we're in the right place 
And of course, then we get more and more and more excited. And when we find fresh scat, that's the pinnacle. And of course, then seeing them is even better. I haven't seen a spectacled hair wallaby yet in the field, but Pius has had multiple sightings and it's super exciting when you're able to actually view them dashing out from their little shelters as you're walking by. Surprisingly, and we talked a bit broadly about where spectacled hair wallabies have been found in Yarrow country. I want to talk a little bit more specifically. So where are they living within Yarrow country? Is it everywhere? Do they like specific spots? What's their favorite place to set up home? In the long type of grass where they can make a bit of a humpy because that's where they sleep during the day because they're nocturnal. And not too much uh, spinifex while here in Yarrow country. In other places there, they might have where they do stay in their spinifex and stuff. And then where it's a bit open. And as long as you haven't got too much fire and stuff like that, because if it's too open, they can't make their little humpies and get a decent feed. And so when you say little humpies, like they're building themselves little houses, like out of the grass? Yeah, they fashion the grass. <laughs> yeah. Like that. Yeah. Do other animals do that? Is that common to see the, like an animal make its own little grass house? No, I haven't, I haven't seen any other, no. <laughs> I've uh, shown Leanne here one mm-hmm. before, those little humpies that made, yeah. Yeah, and you can almost see like their little fingers. They've pulled the grass over their heads. You know, like, you normally see the little marks of their little hands and their fingers, how they pulled it over. It's it's pretty cool. It's so distinctive. (laughs) Yeah. They've got a little photograph of their families just hanging up on one of the walls. Yeah, not something I'd ever seen before, that's for sure. And they also tend to, like, because birds of prey are a problem, you know, so they're trying to hide out from predators. So, they, you know, one or two trees is always good <laughs> and make their little humpy under a tree and as long as the grass is thick enough and, yeah, it's really distinctive type of habitat that they re- yeah. prefer. Yeah, and that's, as Pai said, you know, you train your you train your eye in on the scats and the tracks, but you also need to train your eye in on the certain habitat types that they really like, you know, and that they could be found in. And that's where Pius has been teaching others, has been going to other ranger groups and showing them, you know, this is where you possibly could find spectacled hair wallabies on your country. Let's put a camera here. Yeah, so it's really great transfer of knowledge and and just a community type of collaboration, you know, between different ranger groups and different yeah, native title areas. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a great way to, to teach. As well. Oh, it's an amazing thing for you both to be a part of, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You mentioned before, like you found like a family group of, you know, a male, a female, and a young baby. Do they all sleep in the same humpy, or do they make three little separate humpies and you kind of come on these little villages of spectacle hair humpies in a group? Now, the, the male and the female will make one each for themselves and stay near each other. Oh, <laughs> wow. And the baby, if it's in the pouch, well, stays in the pouch. Otherwise, the baby will make the uh, bit of a humpy or might get a hand from <laughs> mum and dad there too. Oh, so you might have like two, two big ones and a tiny little one and yeah. all in the same area? <laughs> oh, yeah. Because uh, like Leon was saying, yeah, when it came to when we, Yaro invited Niganamangla and Garajadi Ranges because they got the same type of habitat. So they came and on the day I was told to take them out with Mike Weisong and show them what, go and find some scats and show them what it looked like. So we walked along, we found the old one, 
yep, this is what it looked like. And kept walking a bit. Then we found a fresh one. And, they, and I'm like, it's here. It's not far. It's very <laughs> fresh. Walked another 15, 20 meters. And this other fella from Niganamangla heard a bit of rustle. There we seen a male and a female hop away. <laughs> yep. So, I, so we all got a sighting that day. Wow. Everyone would have been pretty excited, I imagine. Oh, yeah. I wanted to chase after to try and catch it, but I couldn't. <laughs> but I couldn't. Too fast. <laughs> what do the Spectacle Hair Wallaby sightings and their scat tell us about the environments in which they live? So our work is, you know, really the foundation of what's known about spectacled hair wallabies in, in WA anyway, because they're much rarer, they're more patchier in their distribution on this side of the country. They also occur in the NT and in Queensland, but they're much more common in the NT and they're much patchier then again in Queensland. So we're really, you know, what what Pius's work and our work has done is, you know, really establish the the first r- real data on what's happening with spectacled hair wallaby in WA. And it's through, you know, that a really great cross-cultural collaboration um, between WWF and the traditional owners and Yarra country managers that's really allowed this to happen. You know, we would never know anything if it wasn't for the Yarra country managers. When we find fresh scats and we find tracks and the little humpies that we were talking about, it means that the animals are actually doing well in that area. And what is it about that habitat? that, you know, tells us that they can do well here. So we're trying to always record what it is that they're preferring um, to live in. So that's really important going forward to be able to manage the habitat and the area. Um, So if we find the scats in the tracks and we find their humpies and we find them, what we usually find is that they're not too far away from a fire scar or the edge of the fire scar. And that's um, from... Previous um, research done in like the NT and Queensland, we found that they could be dependent on this fire scar for some reason. And the reason is that they tend to go and forage during the night on really soft forbs or grasses if they don't have forbs. So these little soft herby type um, plants that are just shooting up after fire. So they need that fire edge to go and feed in during the night but then they need thicker stuff the grass to make their humpies and the the open areas with a few trees around to actually go and shelter during the day so they're really dependent on this fire scar edge and so we're trying to figure out if that's the same in WA and we found with all the research and the work that WWF and Yari country managers have done together we found it is um further away from the fire scar edge they less um, that we don't find them as much, and they're less active. And then closer to this fire sky edge, that's where we're finding them. That's what they're dependent on is this fire sky edge. So when you when you see the tracks and you see the scats and you hopefully see the humpies, you know that this is good habitat for them and possibly you're not too far away from a fire sky edge where they're getting good food and maybe less predators around, hopefully, and they're doing well in this area. It's incredible. It, it makes them almost sound like they're little farmers, you know, like they're building these humpies and then they're, you know, actively eating these young shoots of grass on fire plains. Have you ever 
found any evidence that they're like lighting some of these fires just to give themselves a really perfect home? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, so people that are lighting the fires mostly. <laughs> yeah. We have to keep an eye on those spectacular wallabies. <laughs> yeah, so if the wallabies aren't lighting these fires, who is lighting the fires? Are these uh, like cultural fires? Are they wildfires? Or is it maybe a mix of both? In the Kimberley right now, um, fire management is modeled on past Aboriginal fire management uh, thousands of years ago. So so what the country managers in, in Yarra country and other traditional owners across the Kimberley are trying to do is to burn early in the dry season and burn in really small patchy mosaics. And that models the same kind of fire scars on country and um, the fire behavior that was practiced thousands of years ago um, culturally. So the cultural burns that are carried out are creating these really great mosaics. And of course, the spectacled hair wallabies would take full advantage of that. They'd be able to move around in small patches looking for thick overgrowth that they can shelter in and then looking for the freshly burnt areas where they can feed in. The cultural fire management is creating the best habitat for these animals that they could hope for. Um, the really terrible wildfires that come through at the end of the late dry season, they're a huge problem because they're really intense. They they take all the vegetation with them pretty much. So they eat up all the vegetation on the ground. Um, so they remove, and they're really big. So they're removing the vegetation. They're really intense, creating this denuded like area. And um, it's really big. So cultural fire management is really important because it protects country from these large wildfires that come through late in the dry season. And the large wildfires are intense. They're really big and they take out all the vegetation that spectacled hair wallabies and other species need, not only for shelter but also for food. So cultural fire management is really important for the area. It's also quite special really, isn't it? Like that there is this relationship between the spectacled wallaby and the Yarrow people, you know, like there is beautiful connection in that, you know, these cultural fires are part of the spectacled wallaby lifestyle as well. They yeah. adapted. <laughs> we co-evolved. <laughs> yep. In addition to these cultural fires, what else can people do to help protect the spectacled head wallaby? What can we be doing at home or if listeners live in the broom area and they want to you know help this species thrive what are some things that they could be doing so the main threats to spectacled hair wallabies are as we said fire so don't light up really be really um worried about your fires around campsites and and try not to allow these fires to escape and don't throw out cigarette butts along the highways and we we know and we can see from scar, fire scar um, satellite imagery, this happens a lot at, along roads. You know, that's where the fires start, is along roads where tourists are and from campsites where fires are, are not put out afterwards. So that's the first thing. The second thing is feral cats. They're a huge problem here. So, and while we don't have direct evidence that they predate on spectacled hair wallabies, we do have from our, our cameras, we found that where less, there's less activity of spectacled hair wallabies, um, there's more activity of cats. So whether they're avoiding the time that cats are most active or whether the predation is having a huge effect 
you know, we can't say directly, but we can infer that there's a relationship there. So feral cats are an issue. They're right in the sweet spot of the the size of the animal for, for cat snacks. So we need to make sure that we're doing something about preventing your own cat from uh, hunting, you know, so... Keep it indoors. Don't allow your cat to go hunting in the broom area if you can help it. And they have a huge impact on native animals and spectacled hair wallabies are one of them. And all the birds in the area take a huge hit. So don't do that. And if you can, don't allow your cat to go feral and don't and, and desex it. And then we'll prevent the increase in feral populations, hopefully in the long term. What else, Paya, can you think? No, that's not the cats. Otherwise, other thing I will affect them is might be cattle. Too much trampling of the, all the grasses and where they can't even make their little humpy. A spectacle-head wallaby humpy would look pretty tasty to a cow. Oh, well, as well as trample the ground around it. I would have suspected before, when there was a lot less cattle on Robert Plain Station, they would have had more spectacle-head wallabies then because a lot of no more, uh, there was hardly any bare ground because there was Cattle here, but very little. And there's far more now. And oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if it's overgrazed, yeah. well then yeah, then they would all bear it. So you want to fence certain areas off from cattle if you can to prevent the high impact areas and and allow some some vegetation to regenerate and create habitat for different animal species like the spectacled hair wallaby. Cattle and feral cattle especially are a huge problem in the Kimberley. So what was the reason for the decline in the spectacle-haired wallaby in the broom area? Most probably the uh, introduction of all the cats coming in, because like Leanne said, they're, they're the perfect size for a cat to take out. And maybe some of the um, uh, late bushfires, because some of them, when they come through very fast, I don't think some of the animals might be able to get out the road and end up getting burnt. I reckon that's the two reasons why, because of the cat as well as some late uh Late season burns, fires. And how long had they been gone from the area before your most recent rediscovery? Oh, it was in the 1800s. It was recorded, but a lot of people, our old people, seen it around and there, there was all the stories. But as you know, we don't have the uh, written history. It's all oral. Uh, you know, it's all spoken about. Nothing was written down on what year with the last time they've seen it and stuff like that. But still, we're talking like many of decades, like 40, 50 years, 60 years since people had seen them. Oh, yeah, about 40, 50, yeah. Pius and Leanne, thank you so much for talking about Magaban, the spectacle-haired wallaby with me today on Scat Chat. One thing that I like to do before we finish, though, is get a scat fact. Um, you've already told me how excited you get about spectacle-haired wallaby scat, but often I find that people who work with poo tend to know other things about poo. So I wondered if you had a favourite scat fact for the podcast. No, well, I didn't know it all before, but do I? You can get the DNA from the scats as well as find out what they're eating so they can give you an idea about what type of plant maybe to look for. If you learn what a scat looks like, well, then you look at vegetation and then that give you more idea of like, where to look. And for any other scat, same as Bilby, they do the same now with that to get numbers up. We've collected a lot of cats here for parks and wildlife. And they worked out that from all of that, there was four 
will be around in that area that we all the sketch that we collected. In the end, do you have a favorite sketch fact? Maybe I could have an, an African example, I suppose. Please, please. So I did my PhD on African elephants. So <laughs> elephants are probably the hugest scat, but we don't call them scats. We call them dung. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know where the threshold is that a scat becomes dung, but <laughs> we'll go with elephant dung. And similar to pious, an interesting fact is that we can get the stress hormones from, and I did, from elephant dung. You can tell how stressed an animal is at a particular time, according to the dung sample that you collect and you analyze for stress hormones. What we found was that the really young elephants got really stressed um, during the end of the dry season. In the savannah, we always have dry seasons over in Africa. They needed higher quality food and they were struggling to find higher quality food at that time of the year. And then we also found the nature reserve that we were in, it bordered on a place called Sun City, which is the huge entertainment area. And the elephants that were on the border of this entertainment area had really high stress levels in their dung because there was a big concert on at the time. <laughs> so it's, it's really sensitive way to, to, to measure stress levels in, in, in animals. You can get it from their dung. So that's, yeah, pretty interesting scat fact or dung fact, whichever way you look at it. Well, I've got one for you both, which blew my mind when I learned it, which is that white sand beaches, 80% of that sand is parrotfish poo. Yeah, they crash up all the, all the coral. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, see, Pius, I can't even impress you with my <laughs> scat facts, you know? <laughs> oh, you see that on telly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, well, I like the, watching the new National Geographic and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah you get all these great facts about poo. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, not only that, but other stuff too, eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah a little bit. <laughs> Pius and Leanne, thank you so much for joining me on Scat Chat. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for Scat Chat with WWF. If you want to find out more about how you can help save wildlife like the spectacle-haired wallaby, head to wwf.org.au forward slash scat chat to get involved and follow us here to stay in the loop. Join me next time as I get to the bottom of what a tiny turtle pooing plastic means for the health of our oceans and what we can all do to turn the tide.